0: Okay, let's go
1: on to your next patient.
0: Great. All right. The next patient is an 80-year-old man. He's a never smoker. I guess he smoked a few cigars throughout his life, but really that was about it. Had a lot of occupational exposures. He was a welder, and his wife would describe him coming home just caked with this welding material all over his clothes. And he presented in December of '09, so just about, what, 10 months ago, with shortness of breath and cough and hemoptysis. This had been going on for a few months prior to his diagnosis, and a chest x-ray was performed, which showed a right pleural effusion and a lot of pleural plaques. Subsequent CT showed a right upper lobe mass measuring about seven centimeters and invading into the superior mediastinum. And there were also noted multiple pulmonary nodules. A PET scan showed that the right upper lobe mass was very FDG-avid, as well as the right middle lobe nodules and the pleura and the mediastinum. No disease really outside the chest on the PET scan. MRI of the brain was negative. CT-guided needle biopsy of the right upper lobe mass showed a poorly differentiated carcinoma that was TTF1 positive, consistent with adenocarcinoma. He had a lot of shortness of breath. That was his real primary complaint. And he had uh, therapeutic thoracentesis, which provided a lot of benefit, but then had fairly rapid reaccumulation of the pleural fluid. So we had a lot of discussions about how to manage this, and we decided to admit him for talc pleurodesis, which he underwent. This was actually complicated by a severe air leak in the chest tube. And I've never seen a case like this, but he literally became like the Michelin man with subcutaneous emphysema from head to toe. I mean, he had crepitations in his feet and his fingers and couldn't open his eyes because of the subcutaneous air. He was in the ICU for a good week or so, and slowly the air got reabsorbed and he did fine. I'm just kind of struck by what you're saying. Was he not observed closely enough that it got this far or just... What happened? I don't know. You know, you talk to the thoracic surgeons and they say, oh, yeah, we see a couple of these a year. And <laughs> okay, I've never seen one. But they just say that it happens, I guess, sometimes. So I didn't have a real great explanation. It did not appear that there was any, you know, major problem with the chest tube or anything like that. But
1: Mark, have
2: you seen that?
0: You know, we were talking about
2: this. I haven't certainly seen it to the extent that Matt describes in this particular case, but we have seen some, you know, regional subcutaneous emphysema, but not kind of, you know, the equivalent of anasarca with subcutaneous emphysema, which just sounds like. I've not seen a case like that. And I'll have to, when I get back to Chapel Hill, I'll have to ask our surgeons how often they see this kind of thing
0: amazing it was quite dramatic <laughs> so then what happened he actually recovered fine the talc pleuridesis took and the right pleural effusion resolved and he really felt quite a bit better he received his first cycle of carboplatinum and paclitaxel in the hospital and again that was back in december of 09 can you kind of bring us up to date Sure. You know, it was interesting. There was a lot of discussion with the family at our initial presentation and periodically throughout his therapy about alternative botanical remedies and things like that. They were very much lobbying for high dose vitamin C infusion and chelation therapy and things of this nature, which was a challenge to navigate. There is a local doctor who actually did give him some high-dose vitamin C and, as far as I know, didn't have any major toxicity to it, but we didn't obviously do that in our office. We did do epidermal growth factor receptor mutation testing, which was negative given his non-smoking status. It seemed like that may have had a high chance that that would have been present. He tolerated the therapy with carbopaclitaxel quite well, had a great response in terms of his shortness of breath really resolving, and we moved into second-line or maintenance therapy with Pemetrexid almost immediately upon completing the carbopaclitaxel. And he received that once every three weeks throughout the summer. He probably received somewhere around six cycles of that and slowly progressed with worsening cough and shortness of breath. And restaging scans over this past summer showed Progressive pulmonary nodules diffusely in both lungs, going along with uh, worsening cough and dyspnea. And that is really where we are right now. I guess I've had a lot of debate about what to do next, you know, with some discussion about. End of life, and whether or not we should just focus on symptom management given his age, and he's progressed through two lines of therapy. Patient really did have a preserved performance status and was anxious to pursue other options. So, we talked about erlotinib and actually did start him on that in spite of the EGFR mutation negative status, and we did that for a month. He had a lot of toxicity to the Or with diarrhea and rash, and he felt and I tended to agree that he really wasn't benefiting from it, so we stopped that. And he has recently been started on weekly dose of taxol, and that's where he is right now.
1: So, Mark, how about an
2: email for Alchem him? Yeah, we talked about that today, and certainly in this guy, who's a never smoker, but he certainly had an occupation exposure in the welding business. But what I said to Matt is that in those patients that we test for EGFR mutation, if it's wild type, then certainly in the never smoking population, we screen for EML4 ALK. And so that was something that we talked about with regard to this patient. The EML4 ALK population tends to be male, tends to be a little younger. I think in the original report by Alice Shaw in the JCO, the median age was about 52. This gentleman's 80. But certainly I would do it. You know, it would be interesting to know and certainly create an option for him. One of the concerns in seeing him today was that he was a little bit sick today and it was a little unclear. He seemed to be having some residual diarrhea from the erlotinib. It may have been exacerbated by the use of docetaxel. He looked a bit dehydrated. We were worried about his electrolytes. He was also a bit more short of breath. So we sent him over for an x-ray, which we don't know the result of yet. But, you know, it looked like unless much of this was related to diarrhea, electrolyte imbalance, dehydration, hydration, which would all be reversible. If this was disease progression, then I think even if he had an eml 4 ALK, I think it might be hard to get him on crizotinib quick enough, given the pace of his disease at this point, that it would be a real challenge in an 80-year-old.
1: And there was, of course, a lot of discussion of this at the think tank, and there was concern about tissue going to the wrong place or the test not being done right. Right now, if somebody does have a patient who and particularly these people who are non smokers with EGFR mutation negative adenocarcinomas, where do you send the tumor or the patient? Well, we do our KRAS and EGFR
2: mutations in-house. Our molecular pathology people are working out the kinks of the fish testing for EML four alk. I'm no expert in molecular pathology or fish testing, but they tell me it's a challenging fish assay. We have been sending ours out to a third party who does a PCR-based test. We typically get it back in three to five days. It's pretty rapid. We're accumulating some EML4 ALK positive patients from the outside third party so that we can do our quality control with our internal fish testing. So that's kind of where we are right now. I think there are a number of companies that will do it for you relatively quickly as long as you have enough tissue.
1: Where are we in terms of other agents? Are there other TKIs out there besides Crazatina that have been looked at or are going to be looked at?
2: Well, I think that the finding of these EGFR mutations in the cml 4 al translocations has really provided a great deal of optimism about finding a number of other molecular abnormalities that may be druggable targets. We've all heard about the BRAF story in melanoma. That may be true in a small percentage of non-small cell lung cancer patients. There may be other Mutations and other kinases that could provide druggable targets. I think many of those other drugs are in the very early phase development and may or may not work out based upon this. But I think that these two examples, which I think have really changed clinical practice, the EGFR mutation story, and now in the wake of the EGFR mutations, this EML4 ALK translocation, which, you know, we all saw the chrysotinib data at ASCO and it was every bit as good as the TKI EGFR data in. Patients with EGFR mutation. So, I think this is a lung cancer with a different biology and a biology that's amenable to a deviation from our age old standard of platinum based therapy and using these oral. Targeted agents can be quite effective in some patients. So, in practice, whether you're in community practice or academic practice, this is an opportunity to perhaps have a big impact on these patients with these defined molecular abnormalities. And I'm optimistic that we will find other ones. But in terms of the prime time use, I think erlotinib and crizotinib and those strategies are here.
0: Mark, what percentage of patients are ALK positive?
2: It's a good question. You know, I don't know that we have a great handle on that. If you look at the literature, it looks like about 4% of adenocarcinomas are EML4-ALK positive. The likelihood of finding a EML4-ALK translocation in squamous is much less than probably 1%. So if about 50% of what we see is adenocarcinoma, you know, 4% of that is about 2% of the lung cancer population annually, you know, the lung cancer population is a big population. We probably have at least, you know, somewhere in the range of 100 to 150,000 patients a year that have stage 4 disease. Either they present with stage 4 disease or, you know, a surgeon resected them two years ago and now they relapse with stage 4 disease. So it's a big population. So 2% of a big number is a lot of patients that we could benefit. So I think it bears keeping in mind that it's not necessarily
1: a rare occurrence, although
2: as a percentage basis of the lung cancer, is going to be low.
1: So getting back to the reality of this situation, Matt, it looks like it's going to be another person. You're going to be involved with palliative care. You already are involved with What do you see looking at over the next few months? What's his home situation?
0: What are his concerns? What's his state of mind? Oh, he's got an extremely supportive family. His wife is with him at every visit, and his extended family has been with him on many occasions. A very nice group of people. You know, Up till now, I think he's just really had a very good quality of life. I guess one concern I've had about his clinical courses, the maintenance Pemetrexid that he underwent over the course of the spring and summer really didn't give him any break at all from therapy, and he ultimately ended up progressing on it. And I guess that was one thing that sticks out in my mind of whether perhaps a chemo holiday might have been beneficial and then to pull the trigger and start therapy when he's more obviously progressing. So that's something I'm thinking about just in retrospect. I guess in the short term, I'm really worried that he's actually actively progressing in front of our eyes and not going to really tolerate any further therapy. And I suspect when we do some scans in short order that that's what we're going to see. And I don't think he's going to be a good candidate for any further cancer therapy at this point. And so I probably will be looking at shifting towards really symptom control and a purely palliative care kind of strategy for him, I think, in short order.
1: Looking back over his course, though, actually, now that I look at it, what about the issue
0: of bevacizumab? He never received that. He did, you know, and we actually, after the progression on the pemetrexid, I had tried to get him docetaxel. Bevacizumab is the next maneuver, and we were denied by the powers that be in our insurance industry.
1: How often do you see that, Mark? I mean, presumably it wasn't paclitaxel and Bev in the first line or just wasn't paclitaxel. What do you see in terms of people's ability to actually get bevacizumab?
2: Well, you know, I think that it seems in my impression, I mean, the data supports bevacizumab in the first line setting. Clearly, we have the data from ECOG 4599. We also have the AVAIL trial, which for better or for worse, it is a positive trial. And those were all done first line. The second-line experience is really in the context of the beta trial, which was technically a negative trial. For those of you who don't know the beta trial, it was a second-line trial in which patients were randomized to erlotinib placebo versus erlotinib plus bevacizumab interesting trial primary endpoint was overall survival it was completely negative there was a very high percentage of patients that went on to third fourth and fifth line therapy and so the thinking might be that since there was such a large percentage of patients that got subsequent therapies that that could have blurred a survival advantage when you look at the endpoints of response rate in progression free survival It looked identical to what we saw in ECOG 4599, and that is there was about a doubling of the response rate. It was like 6% on erlotinib placebo versus 12% on erlotinib bevacizumab. And the hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0.62, which was almost identical to what we saw in ECOG 4599 for PFS suggesting that this is a biologically active drug. It didn't translate into a survival advantage, but it had clinical benefits of response in PFS. So do I think this is a drug that for some reason you didn't get it in the first line is totally useless in subsequent lines? No. In all honesty, I think it comes down to who's going to reimburse the drug. And if you're outside the first line setting, sometimes that can be an issue with third-party payers, since there clearly is not an indication for it there But I don't think that there's something biologically different about treating lung cancer in the second, third line setting when it comes to antiangiogenesis versus the first line setting.